0: Welcome to the Environmental Heroes Podcast. You're with Ryan Nungu and Julie Bolton. How are you going today, Julie?
1: I am very good. Very good. Very, very excited Um, as usual. Super excited to bring you this podcast episode, actually, because, man, this is one, um, like every guest and every time we use the word amazing and incredible and inspiring, but You know, you walk away from one interview and you're like, that person, that conversation is going to stay with me for a really long time and what this person is trying to do is, I just found this conversation incredibly fascinating on so many levels.
0: So we talked with Olympia Yaga who started a Canberra business called Go Terra, uh, which is a waste conversion business. Essentially they have insects that they feed food waste to and then they feed those insects as protein to animals beautiful example of a, a circular business, uh, would you say?
1: Yeah, totally, yep. I just, it was a whole point of someone seeing a problem and going, actually, you know what, this is a problem, this isn't right, I've got a solution, and just putting her all into creating the solution and going out there and saying this is what needs to change and this is how we're changing it and just doing it right?
0: Yeah, and what a powerhouse of a woman. I've seen her speak at a couple of conferences and she's now a waste expert in Canberra as a stakeholder and a business owner. She speaks with authority on what needs to be done and it was just such a delight to talk to her.
1: Yeah, like I am, it was a shame too that we had to do this um, remotely Uh, thanks to lockdown because I think both of us have said, man, we really want to get out there and visit her in person, Um, not only because I think, she would make me an awesome cup of tea or coffee. But also because yeah. I think walking around her facility and what she's set up and just, you know, that, like, just that this is what I've got. This is what I've got to show you. Like, I just want to I just want to hang out with her. I want her to be my friend.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what we can do, Julie. But for now, let's bring uh, a conversation with Olympia Yaga. Local environment heroes saving the trees and the bees
2: and doing it daily
0: hello olympia
2: hi guys how are you today good, good thank, thank you. you how are you Very well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'm laughing because we're saying very well through gritted teeth we're <laughs> recording this and it's um what are we day my husband's got a chart where he, locks, he cuts down the days crosses off the days i think he said we're at day 23 today Day 22.
2: It's like a sort of twisted, dark, (laughs) (laughs) depressing. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So three locked teeth. We're all great. The sun is shining. It's a great day to be talking to Olympia. Olympia, we'll start with our first really big question. Can you describe a defining or the defining moment in your life where you looked at the world and thought something needs to change now?
2: Oh, yeah. So it's Bob Hawke did it to me. And, and it's so interesting because um, on paper Bob looked just Bob Hawke looks like a bit like a kind of a dipshit, honestly. I'm not sure if this is a sweary podcast, but, um, you know, he drank a lot of beer and all those sorts of things, but it, it's only been recently that I s- sort of looked at him as a politician because obviously in, in the 80s I was, you know, 10. And so um, but he was actually a bit of a climate champion, old Bob. And there was a bunch of documentaries that came out in the late '80s that was disseminated to schools about greenhouse gases and the global and greenhouse effect. Um, and I remember watching one of these documentaries, uh, and I was at boarding school at the time. And it just showed, you know, mudslides and extreme weather, and there was that ominous voice that said, "If we keep going, this is our future." And I and I remember that night I went. To bed and I couldn't go to sleep because I just kept thinking about that. Um, and it felt so present and I had my first panic attack. I didn't know what it was. I just thought I couldn't breathe. And of course, sister Carmel found me and thought I was just trying to do something naughty. It's not her fault. I was generally doing naughty things, not sitting up worrying about the climate. And so I, um, and that was the first time that I cared about what was happening. And it's always been there. Um, But now I think a lot, like I have this really horrible contrast of remembering what it was like back then to be worrying about it. And, you know, and it's ironic, but at the time my husband's American, he makes fun of the books that my school made me read back then. Cause it was like children of the dust, *Zed for Zachariah, my sister Sift, which are all these like, The world has gone to crap and the children are having a go, like surviving, right? And so I was like wound tight in this mindset that it was all going to end really badly. And then last year, you know, the first of the really bad stuff came to Canberra. And so and it just feels like the nightmare is true and that just is so incredibly sad um, because it didn't have to be this way
1: that's um yeah because if you think like so that's the 80s we're talking about and now we're 2020 like we've had quite a few years where we've known that the world is on a not
2: on a great path yeah we had we we had plenty of time and we 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 pushed it to later which is Mm -hmm. a place to away neither of them exist
1: yeah 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 so your your background we're going we're going to talk about insects in a minute but I think we'll go to your background first. So your background's not in insects and nor is it Canberra I believe. Like That's not
2: where you've where well, you're I'm a, originally from. No no, I'm origi- I'm Bo- Canberra born and bred. Um, oh, uh, you are. Oh, uh, yeah, like my, my I'm I'm wogs from Malaga. I am like I am I am Canberra. <laughs> you're deep you're deep in it yeah 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 you can't but you, you left. left I did you left. left against me yes <laughs> I did.
1: You left. well I'm I'm an import so and Ryan's technically not even in Canberra so. <laughs> <laughs> but we all love Canberra now and that's why we're doing this podcast on Canberra Heroes that's right. yeah um so you've you've worked in a bank you've worked as a family readiness advisor advisory yeah. service for the U.S. Marine Corps yeah you've done communications and marketing Yep. And now you're running an insect farm. Can you tell us about this part?
2: Yeah, so I started in agriculture. Um, and so I graduated St. Clair's Girls College, um, which my mother is a fun fact, my mother is the is listed as the first head girl at St. Clairs on the honor board. Something that was pointed out to me for the two-year tenure I spent at St. Clairs, where I did not live, live up to the family legacy and was reminded repeatedly of such. Um, and I went to the guidance counsellor. I'm like, I want to be in ag. And they were like, yeah, because Claire's girls don't do agriculture. And I was like, sweet, I'm, I'm going to go now and do that anyway. Um, and then life kind of just happened. So I had... Um, a tragedy I, I graduated pregnant you know Stella <laughs> and uh, my son um two and two and a half years later drowned and so um as most people who have had that kind of trauma happen i didn't um i wasn't doing great and so you sort of end up pinging around a bunch sort of looking for relevance and, and security and ended up finding myself in the u.s um where i went i went on a trainee ship to to train horses and work with horses in the horse industry over there um, and ended up meeting my husband who is a United States Marine or was a United States Marine. Um, and then, uh, you know, when you live in military towns, you end up doing really dumb things because there isn't any jobs there. You know, the entire ecosystem of towns that where military people are, you know, if you're not a strip club, a laundromat or a hot, a hot wings place, there's very other little other career paths to follow. And so you sort of find yourself doing lots of different odd things that you might not have looked at before in, a, in an attempt to have a job and an identity outside of the military. But I've always really cared deeply about agriculture and the climate. And so when my husband got out of the military, I, yeah, that was the deal. I said, I will marry you because you are fabulous, but as soon as we are done with this war thing, I'd really like to go back to Canberra. And so we did.
1: Had he been to Canberra before you made that?
2: Nope. he would never even been to Australia. His his list of uh, world travels were um, Michigan, Carolina, and the, uh, California, Afghanistan, and Iraq. <laughs>
1: I'm trying to think out of all of those, which one is most closely, most closely resembles Canberra?
2: Um, San Diego, actually. Okay. Yeah. Super progressive, um, very hip, um, you know, hanging out um, in the outdoors, good culture, migrant population. Yeah. Way more
0: people. Yeah, give us a second, the old bearer, we'll get there. And so fast forward a bit, Olympia, what made you decide to do a Bachelor of Sustainable Development in 2012 and what did you want to do with that course when you finished?
2: So I started doing a Bachelor of Counterterrorism um, back before counterterrorism was a thing. And so um, I started that course and then I realised, like I was about halfway through it, it's like this is just a course for four years, that explains what counterterrorism is. Like at the time, there was not, uh, it, there was no depth to that, um, that that sort of career path. So I transferred, I was like, you know, I had thought about wanting to do stuff in sort of humanitarian relief, um, sort of working in refugee camps and things like that. Um, okay. And then when I realised. It wasn't sort of what I wanted to do. I transferred it over to sustainability, mostly because that was the only online degree in pseudo agriculture, something or other that I could find. Um, And I was still in the US at the time. So I was using open universities um, in the US. Um, So, yeah, it was really just a way to reconnect with sort of agriculture and wanting to do things like that. Um I believe strongly in in returning balance to our ecosystems when we look at producing food um, and and have definitely, in my career as in agriculture and and throughout, have seen where when that's done well, the the benefits um are just you know outweigh anything else that we we look at. So,
0: yeah, your business is called Goterra. um and when we've been we've done a few of these interviews now, and Julie, reached out and said, oh, we We have to interview the maggot lady. <laughs> and that's because um, you use insects. So your, your business is an insect farm that processes food waste to produce insect meal. Um, what is it that's drawn you yeah. to insects?
2: So it, it started off just we were looking for um, sustainable livestock feed and the insects can be used as a protein in agriculture production, so uses as a protein input uh fly fly farming you know I started off in sheep I'm now in maggots which you know anyone that knows anything about sheep knows that you're kind of a maggot farmer and so I spent what the first 10 years of my life trying to kill maggots and now I've spent the last six years of my life trying to um keep them alive which is you know a fabulous irony um but mostly started at protein and then once we started really understanding the landscape of waste and how to get enough food waste to the maggots to get them to eat, we recognise that, you know, GoTerra really is a waste management business that in the nature of its capability delivers a circular economy because its offtakes can be returned back to the Mm -hmm. supply chain, um, which is a really unique um, capability. And then what we've done is extrapolated that premise and gone, Okay that's that's true on the basic merit of give food waste to a maggot and the maggot becomes insect protein but the complexity of waste management and waste infrastructure and waste logistics means that if we are going to deploy this solution in a meaningful way then we need to actually reimagine what the infrastructure to do that would look like because it's not enough to continue to replicate this sort of how landfills work or how intensive farms work because we already know from decades that they don't work, and they're actually quite um, they're quite broken in their in their logistics and their and their capabilities. So it's like if we build an autonomous system that the insects can be taken as close to the waste as possible, then we've completely changed how waste can be managed but we haven't disrupted the industry in a way that hurts or makes it difficult so that's kind of the unique way we've looked at it
1: so this is what you've done with by building your modular units like that's the system that you're talking about where it's all a closed loop the system in effect in that modular
2: space yeah, so if you think about waste management infrastructure, you've got like there's, it's like all the way on either side and nothing much in the middle, right? So you can go and build a landfill or build an anaerobic digester or whatever, but these are big infrastructure plays that cost money and that means constituents have to pay for it, right? So it doesn't matter what mechanism we're going to use, someone's paying. And, this, and then the alternative is, well, we we just don't build any of these sort of systems and we just continue with landfill and everything just goes to landfill and what that usually means is that you've got a really difficult to manage landfill and then you've also got a landfill that'll age out really quickly because all the volume's going there and so we looked at it and we were like what we need is infrastructure that can grow at, to at, per need and it can flex with that need so that you know, in harvest season in a regional town if there's a need to get rid of some waste, it can take it, but it's not going to be requiring that high volume all the time, which is the difference around existing infrastructure, which is like if I'm going to put an anaerobic digester in here, you're going to need to bring me all this waste every day or else the feasibility of this doesn't work and I'm going to charge you for that that shortfall. And so we were like can we make something that's more flexible that can adapt and that people don't have to pay for the whole thing they can start small so our unit is a 20 foot shipping container that depending on the substrate has a 5 ton per day throughput and it can stand on its own at its at a client's location and manage waste just like a compactor or you know whatever just put the waste in the in the hopper and then the machine manages the rest or we can stack you know 20 of them in a warehouse and the trucks can go around as they still do and pick up the smaller loads and bring it back to our, our system um, because aggregated small loads is actually where most waste is. Like most waste doesn't happen in thousands of tonnes at a time. It happens in tens of kilos a week. And so, you know, collect these aggregated loads, bring them back to a decentralised location um, and manage them there and those those units can draw off a centralised tank. Um, but what it means, so when we look at we're deployed a unit down to Albury, is that we can start with just one. We don't need to build seventy. We can just start with one, and we'll manage what's available. And then as the the service providers can generate new sales pipelines and get their customers on online, we'll add another one, and then we just keep growing until we've reached capacity for that region, and then it's done. And I think that's just offers a unique capability. For waste management, we don't really have right now in any other place. The
1: other thing it does, you've spoken about on your website, is that um, by managing waste with these flies and not going to landfill, you can reduce emissions by up to ninety-seven percent. That's massive! I know, maggot
2: power.
1: (laughs) Talk to us about food. Like, what's the link there with food waste, landfill, and emissions?
2: So food waste, you know, creates methane. So when it breaks down, it generates a a, a massive amount of methane Um, and so 1,700 CO2 kilo equivalent um, coming off a tonne of food waste if it just goes to landfill and rots. Um, That's reduced if you compost it or you anaerobic digest it or, you know, other methods. Um, But with us, we generate 35 CO2 equivalent kilos Of um, emissions in our process Um, and most of that comes from the uh, final degrading of the frass so the insects eat all the waste they get fat they create manure which is called frass and then that frass has a high nutrient content and in this in the composting of that frass you'll get you sort of those that's where most of those 35 kilos of co2 emissions comes from. Um, so but that's the game right we've got to reduce emissions in any way possible in meaningful amounts Um, if we can stop food waste rotting and get insects to eat it as fast as possible that's a great day and if we can get that those insects to be as close to where that waste is as possible then we guarantee the ability to take as much of the waste as we can Um, so yeah it's it's a kind of exciting time to be a maggot farmer to be fair
0: Um, And the other side of the coin is that by this process, you've reduced the need for us to grow other food for livestock like corn and soy, which takes up a lot of land, and um, we all know that monocultures aren't exactly working for our biodiversity. Can you talk to us about how this can potentially replace animal protein for pet food, um, for aquaculture, and why this is important?
2: Now, I'm not sure if insect protein will ever replace mostly because of the amount of food waste required to make meaningful tonnages of insects. Um, but I do think it's an additive that goes a long way in reducing dependencies on imported grains for some of our livestock feed. Um, and, and I guess the way I look at it is you really want to make sure that the supply chain has capability and and what we need to do is increase the amount of protein in the supply chain so that we can grow enough meat or your animal product protein to feed ourselves. So if you look at it, if you can reduce the amount of um, proteins going into aquaculture or pet food, then you free up proteins that can go up the food chain into pork, poultry and, and cattle sheep. Um, so that's sort of where you see yeah, it's it's not so much that it'll replace these things, but it will just increase the capability of protein production and that therefore free up um supply chain availability to be pushing up further up the food chain, right? So your, your the challenges for climate change around food production, um, it doesn't matter whether we go vegan or you know stay meat eaters, insofar as nothing is producing at 40 degrees Celsius. So we are going to be hampered in our production of protein, whether it's pulses and legumes or cattle in the in the future we've created purely because of the stress of heat um, in production systems. And so um, you know, any way that we can help reduce emissions and then bring in, in that process, bring protein into the supply chain to help in production. I think is is what we need to be looking at. So that I think that's where insects are actually the most powerful. It's not so much just trading one for another. It's more, it's like it's almost unlocking a new capability in the supply chain.
0: This is pretty unique stuff.
2: Yeah, it's creepy. You can replace like you can feed ten percent less feed um, with. A insect inclusion diet, like it, it's got some really unique benefits as a feed additive. Yeah, that's huge. Really cool. Do you eat insects? I do. Yeah, I have been bullied and harangued by staff until I um, started eating them um mealworms are my favorite i i really like a mealworm um they taste like the difference uh, the cross between a prawn chip and a cashew so they've got this and they, they could be possibly the best snacking in like thing on the planet because you just you just keep eating them like it's pretty full on um i have a i have finally eaten a black soldier fly lava which took a while but um yeah look i i just the cultural connotations around insects are real and and the, they're heightened when it comes to maggots. And so, um, yeah, it took a fair amount of fortitude I didn't have to get myself to put one in my mouth. But, um, <laughs> it's um, yeah, they taste good. Not, they don't taste bad. But, um, again, these, this is where some of this is around privilege, right? Like these feelings about what I put in my mouth are, uh, born of the privilege of being Australian and and having this immense opportunity to choose what kind of foods I want to eat and how I want to eat them and how I want them to be produced. Um, I think a lot of that going away in the next five years. And
1: then I feel too the issue of food waste um, can perhaps also be a, a privileged. Like we, we we can go to the shops we're so used to having our supermarkets so full of food that we then buy all the food and we bring it home and our fridge is full of food and then I'm not sure people enough people yet are making that connection with how that food has been grown and then if you're just throwing out that food, like that's just that is just so terrible. It's so terrible. So tell us what you think. Like what's what's the deal with food waste in Canberra? Do we have a massive food waste problem or are we all are we
2: pretty good? Look, Canberran's would have to be sort of the most woke of all the states. And and I think that's you yeah, we f- it's pretty easy to do when you're a small um small regional community um that has a high wealth um you yeah, know, we're high wealth demographic. So you know um that's just the fortunate nature of being in Canberra, I think. Um we I think Even when we're doing good at managing our waste, um, we still waste like rich people. And I know that the word rich is different perspectives for different people, but by and large, we are wealthy um, in how we can make decisions, right? So if anyone is throwing away any food of any kind, uh, so the moldy stuff in the back of the fridge on shopping day, then you're wealthy, right? Because you had the ability to let that thing that you bought, that you spent money on, go to waste. And having lived in my car, you don't do that when you're broke. There are no things left in your fridge to go mouldy, like at all. And so um, I think what's interesting is there's, there's a concentric circles of progress around the perception of what, it looks like to be less wasteful, but when it comes from a perspective of privilege, that is always somewhat tweaked, right? And so it's like, oh, I wasted less. <laughs> okay. Do <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and, and I think, you know, supermarkets get a lot of flack around this, right, where it's like, oh, you know, they cut the cauliflower in half and and they won't buy these size cauliflowers And it's like, well, Woolies didn't wake up this morning and decide that's how they were going to handle it. You told them that. You know, they know us better than we know ourselves. And they know down to the size of the bloody cauliflower what we will and will not buy. And so we, these, and again, these are choices we're making around really weird things. Like, you know, I know one, um, we were talking about food choices and a lot of people are like, oh, I can't, I don't buy that size because it won't fit in my fridge right as if you can't take it home and like cut it yourself so you're just like I have to buy one that's already cut or in plastic wrap or because it won't fit in my fridge so I buy three of the cut ones instead of one of the whole ones and or you know things same with meat you know when I put it in this tray I have to cut this bit off because we don't use it oh why oh my mum told me to do that why did your mum tell you to do that and then you find out later that mum told you to do that because the pan that she had never fit that bit in, so she just cut it off. Like there's a really interesting ways we look at food. So I think, um, I think we are right now we're still kind of in that place where we don't actually understand what it's going to take and that's because it still hasn't really hit us and we are disconnected from what it takes to get food on our plate. Um, but even in agriculture, I think we are a little bit, right? Like we still expect to turn up to the grocery store and find the food we want. We want mangoes in in June. I just do. And I want avocados then too, you know. And so I think fr- fr- balancing privilege with knowing is going to be forever Hard because the people want what they want, even though they know that this is the the world can't support it. So, I think what we will end up coming to is people will will get better at the logistics. We're going to get better at a lot of those things, which will reduce waste. Um, there'll be you know, peel is one. You know, the covering for fruit and veg so that it doesn't go off. There'll be a lot of that stuff that happens, which will kind of force the reduction of waste based on the shelf life um, before we'll see people knowingly buy differently or operate differently on that end.
1: Mm, yeah. Um, you mentioned at the very beginning of that um, answer to that question, having having lived in your car. Yeah. Can we can we
2: ask you about that? Yeah. It's what happens when you're really poor? <laughs>
1: Yeah. And it happens more and more. And like, so what did you, what what did you learn from that experience? Like not just about, you know, really valuing food, obviously, but what else?
2: Um, I learned that as a woman, I um, was going, I am, I have been trained to be selfless in the divorcing of myself from someone else. And so I chose to allow my partner at the time to, be comfortable so that I could leave. Um, and that inherently made it difficult. Um, and so, um, I found a new job in a new town, but because I took nothing when I left, um, because the energy it took to have even a marginally sensible conversation with that individual was quite difficult. Um, so I took the burden of, of, of the hardship. So I, I, moved to a new town very close, sort of about 45 minutes away um, and, you know, couldn't afford to both drive back and forth to um, be with my son um, because we had shared custody as well as, you know, the rent, the deposit, the electricity and all the things you have to save up for um, to go into a new home. And so, um, yeah, I'm I'm like a very super boring divorcee statistic um, of what it takes to leave a really, really not great marriage at the time um, to try and um, start again. So I was in my car for six weeks in the end, um, which is how long it took me to get to get everything together, to get sort of a little apartment. Um, and, and it taught me, I think, that um, poverty is um, not something you can climb out of um, alone. And, and, and that, and a lot of people are like, Oh, you know, you know, you worked really hard. I'm like, it makes no difference. Like when you have no money, you can work as hard as you like, but you're so close to the edge that small things that would not affect somebody with money affect you immensely. And then I always say the only reason why I didn't end up staying in my car is because I had rich friends or wealthier, well-off friends. And they, again, not rich, mansion rich, but just people who had jobs. Whereas if all of my friends were in the same place as me, um, who's helping me get out of anything? Who's lending me pots and pans? Who's lending me money to pay for the electricity to come on? Um, nobody is. And so, um, yeah, it, you know, at the, those sorts of challenges around the social impact of coming out of poverty require people to help you come out um, you could I was working three jobs at, this, at that time and I still needed um, friends to help me with the electricity and the bond because I just physically couldn't pay I could not save enough money I was paying off a lot of debt um, that I'd taken on in the divorce and so it's like you know I had $1,200 credit card debt a month and I made $1,100 a month so Like you just not, you're not getting out of that three. You physically can't work more than three jobs. (laughs) And so it's like, how do you like push out? And so, yeah, I, I think I'm fortunate to have had the experience, but I'm conscious that I had the experience in this like kind of gross, like controlled way. Right. Like at the time it didn't feel controlled. It was scary and horrible and really bad, but I just put my toe in that world for like a tiny little bit of time. I I, I can look back on it with pseudo-nostalgia pseudo nostalgia and sort of this like poetic, poignant, yes, and I learned deeply from my, in my small moment being poor, but I didn't actually have to suffer that existence for an extended period of time. So it's given me a good perspective on what it takes, but it hasn't necessarily been... Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't the worst thing that ever happened to me.
1: That that idea of community and needing community around you to help you, I feel um, like in Ryan and I, we've done quite a few of these podcasts now, and the sense of community for dealing with the planet and for helping our world is something that comes out really, really strongly as well. Like it's, it requires a team. It's a team effort. Like for everybody, for everything
2: yeah, we're not alone here. Like this is not, and and I think this is where we're kind of in, it's in odds with how the, how we've evolved socially in the last 20 years, you know, with the onset of social media, we've become these little islands. Um, I remember reading a post, a blog a, a couple of years ago called, um, we've lost our village and it talks about how parents of children in these last couple of decades have become super isolated or have, like purposefully isolated themselves right so nobody's allowed to look after these children nobody could possibly help them with these children they create these really weird regulations and rules around looking after these children um, and so you don't have this connectedness to your community anymore where you're just like can you quickly look after my kids so I can go to the shops? Or, um, you know, I saw your children being dipshits down the road and I yelled at them, thank you. Yeah, you know, like, it's like village raising the idiot, things gone away. And so um, when you try to rally people around climate change, you end up in this same place where you're like, oh, it hasn't bothered me, or I don't know what I could do. And it's like, well, alone, you're kind of useless. But if you could just join us over here in this little group. There'll be more of us and then we can actually get some stuff done. Um, But, yeah, we've lost that muscle a little bit, I think, which is really sad.
0: Yeah, from all the people we've talked to, it's pretty obvious that we have a plan. We know what we need to do. It's just getting that motivation across that change of track, as you say, maybe from being disgusted by eating fly larvae to actually accepting that, what protein is and where it comes from and (laughs) that we might not have too many choices in the future.
2: Yeah, it'll be interesting, right? Like I I, um, have this idea that some of these sort of choices around, you know, how we grow food and whether or not animals are inside or outside will actually be really challenged, right? So if if temperatures continue to rise, the only safe place to raise animals will be inside. Mm. And so this whole like outside free-range thing is kind of like, Ooh, how, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about, right? Because it's like we've been fighting for these things to be outside and free for ages. And then we put them outside and they're like, it's really hot. Can we come inside? Can be back inside? Yeah, you know, like it's like what's what sort gonna of change in this new world around how we have perceived wholesomeness or um, or thoughtfully produced food in an inhospitable climate yeah it's
0: interesting what do you think Julie do you think it's time we head to our hero questions
1: (laughs) I think absolutely I mean there's so many more things I feel we could ask you and go into here but um yeah I think we'll go to the hero questions because I think you might have some more nuggets of wisdom for us in these (laughs) questions so the first one Olympia congratulations you've just been elected the president of the world what's the one change you try to implement first
2: Uh, Women's equality. Good one. Yeah, if women had a a seat at the table, not like a small corner at the kids' table on a fold-out chair with the bottom missing, I think we would actually see a fairly dramatic shift in how we look at the world. We are missing the nurturing voice the, the different dynamic, the different way of thinking from our core decision-making, um, and, and it shows we're unbalanced in how we're approaching things, and it's because half of the population doesn't have a, a place to sit.
0: Very much so. Um, question number two, it's the year 2030. Describe the world you see around you.
2: In 2030, I think it's hot, and I think we talk about remember when it was cold and I think when we have days where the weather drops in temperature and we get excited for cool days. I think that and then we're getting used to living with extreme weather events, so excessive rain, um, things like that. On the upside, I think the technology ramp has accelerated past what we're seeing now and we're like throwing everything we have at it. And when we do that as humans, magical things happen. Um, And so I see a world where there's equal amount of opportunity for despair and hope at the same time.
1: So it's not a world where we're completely crying, but it's not a world where we're completely happy either. We're kind of, we're still working our way through it.
2: I don't think it's Mad Max just yet, but I do think people, I think you'll find... A more battle ready community. I think that's whereas right now we're kind of like, hey, there's about to be something big, we gotta go fight it. Yeah, yeah, but Friends is on. I'll be there in a sec. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> battle ready, battle ready. Yeah.
1: Mm. Mm. Last one. Um, who are your environmental heroes?
2: Ah. <laughs> um, okay. So, um, Annika Molesworth, um, Karen Stark. So, two formidable women in agriculture. Karen looks at um, renewable energy in, for farming, and Annika is like just this bright light of hope in the farming and agricultural communities. I uh, couldn't get away without talking about Greta Thunberg, because holy crap, like, thank you. Um, and um, Lindsay Adario, who's a photojournalist, a war photojournalist who captures the lives of women impacted by war and um, climate, and the story of women and the story of war are so connected for me that, um, yeah, the fact that she's gone to dangerous places and told the story of women that are fighting on the edge of these degrading ecosystems is is
0: powerful question number four olympia what's your hot tip for our listeners for being more environmentally friendly or aware
2: <laughs> consciously giving a shit please and <laughs> so i think it's time for us to stop suggesting that it's impolite to make bold statements or demand better of our cohorts of friends and peers i think it's time to be more pointed in the purpose so if you're making environmental changes at home share that information with your peer group they need to hear that people are looking at this because it's likely they are as well but if you could just mention it then there's somebody that they can connect with we still call anyone who cares about the environment greenies which is like a franklin dam leftover that just will not die um and we've got to make the in being an environmentalist cool again and the only way to do that is to to be more vocal about the things you're doing to to give a shit and and that will help others do the same
1: finally what's your slogan quote mantra life message that you'd like to leave our listeners with
2: uh uh, so hold on i'm gonna make sure i don't um misquote it because I'm still um, right. so it's every year I pick one um, and this year it's from James Baldwin and it's um, not everything that is faced Brian can be changed but nothing can be changed Dive until it's the
0: faced tree.